0: Uh, Here we are again, another Humble Perspectives podcast with Steve Humble. In this episode, I'll be reading from my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. Chapter 4, Setting a Course. I'll tell you up front that there's a part in here where I'm going to read a rather long footnote, which is mostly scripture but it's very important to my journey and to what I believe needs to be a very important issue, an incredibly important issue for God's people. Setting a course. In the fall of 1970, I entered Marion College as a junior. The studies were intense, mostly because I had to take so many courses in order to fulfill the requirements of the English education program in time to do my student teaching in the spring of 72 and graduate. In looking back, however, it was not the things I studied that were the keys to where God was taking my life. Rather, it was people and ideas and incidents that made the most impact. At Marion, I became friends with linguistics professor Russ Cooper. Russ, after graduating from Marion College a few years earlier, had gone on to study linguistics so that he could be a Bible translator. He had had contact with Wycliffe Bible Translators and with their educational organization, the Summer Institute of Linguistics. He had done his graduate work at the University of Hawaii and had spent time in Papua New Guinea gathering material to use in the dissertation required by his PhD program. In 1970, Russ returned to Marion to teach for a few years. His goal was to stir up others to respond to the need for Bible translators before he and his family returned to Papua New Guinea as members of Wycliffe. I took several linguistics classes that Russ taught. Although I enjoyed the classes, it was the man himself who was more influential in my life. Russ was, and probably still is, a nonconformist in the highest sense of the word. I found him to be a man of great intelligence with an uncrumped Compromising dedication to God, he also refused to conform unthinkingly to the status quo, whether to social or religious expectations. The Lord used Russ to sow in me the need, seed about Bible translation. A particular impact was the fact that Russ was influential in bringing former Wycliffe translator Don, Doctor John Crawford, at the time a professor in English and linguistics at the University of North Dakota, he brought Dr. Crawford into Marion to make several presentations at a missions conference. Little did I know that meeting Dr. Crawford then would open a door for me several years later. Russ Cooper was among the most excellent teachers of my school experience, but the Lord also used him to challenge the narrow boxes of my thinking, a more important contribution by far. Those boxes had already begun to be challenged, of course. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in opening up the scripture to me had begun to open a new way of thinking in me. The very climate, the thoughts and trends of the sixties, had influenced me to begin to see the world through different eyes than those which I had grown up. Reverend David Van Hoos's psychology class at CBC had also contributed to this development. Because Reverend Van Hoose, who also as my first cousin, confronted us with ways of thinking and ways of explaining the human predicament that were new to me. I am chagrined when I think about how some of these ideas had influenced me in a negative way, one that was incompatible with the Bible. Yet, had I not been exposed to them, I am not at all sure that I would have been able later to approach the Bible looking for real answers. It was important to my journey for me to ask the hard questions, even if for a time I was influenced by the wrong answers. Otherwise, I probably would have remained in the box of the evangelical fundamentalist holiness worldview that I had grown up thinking was the absolute truth. Thank God, much in that framework was and is true, and it has been foundational to my life. However, as long as I held it to be truth in an absolute and final sense, I could not progress on the journey toward ultimate truth, truth this time with a capital T. Ultimate truth is absolute and final. Ultimate truth is the revelation of God in His Son, the Logos, and is unveiled to us by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. And here I interrupt the reading. To share a long footnote. Although my understanding of God's people and of the church was only budding at this point in my journey, there is an essential reality that should be considered in the matter of seeking ultimate truth. Many Protestants tend to forget that the scriptures were written by spirit inspired men of God, 2 Peter 1 20 21, for the people of God. Certainly individual study is essential, but Scripture is not to be privately interpreted. We are to seek understanding of Scripture in the context of the people of God, both past and present. One of the great disasters of the division among God's people in the churches is that we are more deficient in understanding and applying Scripture accurately than we ought to be. If only God's people would take Jesus' prayer in John seventeen seventeen to 23 seriously. If only we would heed the Apostle Paul's exhortation, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4 1-7 and 11-16. At best, we finite human beings, as the Apostle Paul wrote, know in part for now we see in a mirror dimly 1 Corinthians 13:9 and 12 In Christ Jesus we know the truth who is first and foremost a person I am the way and the truth and the life John 14:6 And though we know him we are also enabled by his spirit to increase in the knowledge of God see Colossians 1:10 Living things are growing things. If we are not growing in the truth, then we must consider the real possibility that we are dead to truth. Again, I'm using T, capital T, truth. The footnote explains this from, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, in an address he gave at University of Notre Dame in April. In April, 1981, as quoted by Nancy Piercy in the epigraph of her book, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity, 2004, Francis Schaeffer said, Christianity is not a series of truth in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth, concerning total reality, and the intellectual holding of that total truth, and then living in the light of that truth. Back to the main part of my book. A significant aspect of the journey is that God brings people, ideas, and circumstances into our lives in order to cause us to ask questions. God makes us face things that expose the limitation of our present knowledge so that we will seek him for more knowledge. However, it is altogether too easy for us to rest on our unconscious assumptions and even religious sounding cliches rather than face head-on the discomfort of actively trusting in Jesus the truth, even when we are past the ability to understand. Bible translator J.B. Phillips wrote a little book called Your God is Too Small. I've had a copy of the book for years, although I've never read the whole thing. I keep it around because every time I see it, the title reminds me that I need to keep growing in knowing God and His ways, rather than to measure God according to the limits of my present understanding. Thank God for those whom He has used to crack open the boxes in which I would have confined Him. Thank God that He has held on to me and led me even when I started to stray onto some dead-end path, whether in ideas or in behavior. Truly, He is Lord of the Journey. In addition to using people and subjects in my academic experience, God also was using the broader culture of the times to move me along. As horrible and as untenable as it may sound to many Christians, Rock and roll music has proven to be part of the journey, too. Listening to rock and roll music was one of the many no-nos in my family and church training. For that matter, most things in popular culture were no-nos. It seems sometimes that our view of the Christian life was defined more by what we were not allowed to do than by the things that we could do. I realize now that there was an underlying wisdom behind many of these no-nos. However, at the time, the rules of the Christian life seemed to me more like, moralisms, more like moralisms than like wisdom for living. Part of this may have had to do with the way they were presented, but I am sure a significant part also had to do with the way I heard them. In my childhood and teen years, one of the indicators of whether or not I was on or off regarding spiritual things was whether or not I listened to rock music. We didn't believe that any form of dancing was moral. It was not only that rock music was dance music, but also that rock musicians, starting with Elvis Presley and the white community at least, made sexually suggestive movements while performing. Rock mu- music was also a symbol of teen rebellion. Besides that, the rock beat, derived largely from Afro-American music, was associated with the pagan music of Africa, music that in many cases was religiously oriented, but toward pagan gods and spirits. Therefore, when I was saved, quote unquote, I didn't listen to rock and roll. And when I was backslidden, I did listen. For instance, I was in a saved period when the Beatles came onto the scene. Therefore, I never identify with Beatlemania. When I made that final commitment of my life to the Lord in April 1966, rock music went out of my life. At this point, let me say that there were and there are good reasons to evaluate the morality and the social impact of dancing, of sexually suggestive movements, and of the music of pagan worship. There are most certainly valid and understandable reasons for objections. However, there will be problems when we simply ban cultural expressions like these as sins without training people to understand the biblical principles and wisdom that they may violate. In addition, we open the door to confusion when we teach people that something like dancing, for instance, is a sin without qualifying it in any way. When a thinking person who has been taught to reject all dancing as sin, discovers that the Bible refers to some dancing in a positive way, even as an expression of worship, that person is almost sure to wonder about the credibility of the whole teaching. In overreaction, that person may well accept all dancing without using any discernment at all. I did listen to contemporary folk music in the mid 60s, even within the hearing of my parents. It was not unusual for me to sit at the kitchen table on a school night during my high school, doing my high school homework, eating a triple-decker peanut butter, mayonnaise, and strawberry jam sandwich or two, while listening to the folk music program on WBNs out of Columbus, Ohio. Ironically, the lyrics of folk music and often the radical ideas of musicians such as Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Barry McGuire, Peter Paul, Mary were to prove just as influential, if not more so, on the thinking of the 60s generation than the often inane lyrics of the 50s and early 60s rock and roll tunes would. However, I never questioned the sinfulness of rock music until after I'd been in Bible college for a year or two when our academic dean, Reverend George Blackstone, returned from a conference at which he had heard a presentation about the evil of rock music. That presentation had so shocked and concerned him that he played a tape recording of it for our chapel service. The speaker, Bob Larson, had been in the rock scene to some degree and then had become a Christian. He, too, rejected all music at that time and had written a book against it, all rock music at that time, and had written a book against it titled Hippies, Hindus, and Rock and Roll. As I remember it, Larson dealt with two matters. One, the sexual effect of the rock and roll syncopated beat, and two, the messages about drugs and Eastern religions conveyed by the lyrics of many rock songs during that period. Larson played sections of numerous songs to illustrate his point. Interesting enough, I add parenthetically, within a short time, Bob Larson himself began to make a distinction between the problem of bad content versus the rock music form. The message, however, of Larson had an unintended effect on me. I was preaching an average of once a week at the time, most often to young people. I began to think that I should listen to these songs also, if there was the music the young people was if this were the music the young people were listening to. Then I thought I would be able to address and counter the messages of their music more effectively. So I began to listen to rock music on the radio. When I moved into a dorm at Marion College, one of the guys in the room next door had a large collection of record albums and eight-track tapes. With his permission, I began to listen often to his recordings. These exposed me to rock recordings that never would have made the popular Top 40 format on AM radio. Because of Bob Larson's presentation, I cultivated the habit of listening first to the lyrics, an activity that became easier when many artists began to add song lyrics to the album package, something that had not been done in the earlier rock and roll, in which the lyrics for the most part were secondary to the music. However, as I listened, I developed a taste for the rock sound itself. In a sense, I entered into my generation in a fuller way, whether for good or for real. It was in 1970 or 1971 that I first heard a broadcast of the Scott Ross Show. Scott's radio broadcast was a syndicated program or originating in Freeville, New York. WCOL, a Columbus, Ohio rock station, had begun to air the show in our area. Scott Ross had been a New York City disc jockey and had been instrumental in introducing the music of the Rolling Stones to the United States. He had married a member of the Ronettes, one of the major girl groups of the mid-60s. Scott and his wife Nedra had become Christians, but he did not lose his interest in contemporary music. By 1969 a group of believers had begun to come together with Scott and Nedra to form Love Inn, which in effect was a Christian commune. Scott developed a rock music program playing rock songs that he discussed from a Christian point of view. It was not unusual for him to preach a little and to pray over the air for the needs of listeners. From this program, I began to discover that there were a few Christians who were recording Christian lyrics in a folk and rock format. I had no idea when I came across the Scott Ross Show that I was coming into contact with influences that would begin to shape the direction of my spiritual growth and of my life. In 1967, the hippie phenomenon in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco hit its peak in terms of publicity, and maybe even in influence during the summer of love. That summer, the media publicized the public orgies of free sex and hallucinogenic drug use commonly called love-ins. Thousands of young people went to San Francisco and behaviors common to that movement and to some degree the attitudes and philosophies behind it spread across the nation. In the midst of this counterculture movement, however, Jesus began to reveal himself, sometimes dramatically to a few of the young participants in this counterculture. Most of these had begun to see the hippie lifestyle for the dead end that it was and were continuing their search for meaning and truth in other directions. Gradually, the number of freaks, as the counterculture youth called themselves, who turned to Jesus began to grow. Most of them, however, did not and probably could not identify with traditional Christianity. Rather, they simply continued their life as freaks. However, they began to worship Jesus, to study the scriptures, and to seek to live to live the life of disciples that they saw recorded in the New Testament. In so doing, they began to lay aside the lifestyle of drug use and sexual promiscuity, albeit some more gradually than others. However, my first remembered inkling that God was doing something new in our generation, other than what I would picked up from the Scott Ross show, came from a more religious source. In February nineteen seventy, word spread to Circleville Bible College that an unusual moving of the Holy Spirit had begun in a chapel service at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. That service lasted without dismissal for several days. It was characterized by public confession of sin, repentance, surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, and even while the meeting continued, students began to fan out to other Christians' colleges. And the revival began to spread. I pause here to say what you're probably already thinking. Just recently in February of 2023, we have had another outbreak very similar at Asbury College that went in on longer there and is continuing, as I hear it, to impact people in other places. Back to the book. At CBC, we did not experience dramatic results from this moving of the spirit. However, I believe it played a big part in motivating John Meadows and me to make that commitment to one another the following May. To the best of my memory, it was not until the fall of 1971, after Patricia and I had married, that I began to be aware of the stirring among youth involved in the counterculture. Then several things happened about the same time, though I cannot remember the exact order of occurrence. Time magazine ran a cover article on the Jesus Movement that included reports of huge ocean baptismal services and a new form of music. John Meadows told me about some encounters with long-haired hippie types openly and boldly committed to Jesus at Ohio State University where he had gone to school. I found an ad in Campus Life magazine, a magazine published by Campus Crusade for Christ, offering a selection of 20 or 25 long-play record albums of Jesus music. I ordered five of them at the special price of $17, which included postage. Since our Christmas in 1971 promised to be short on gifts, Patricia talked me into saving the records before listening to them, in order to wrap them up as a gift for Christmas morning. I had a musical feast that morning as I listened to album after album, most of the time lying on the floor with my head between the two small speakers of our cheap webcore phonograph. For the most part, the music was not profound musically, and not technically well produced. However it was alive with a simple love for Jesus, and the sounds of my generation. Later that week, Patricia and I drove to Indianapolis to a concert held in the basement of a big old red brick Baptist church building north of downtown. It featured a band simply called E. According to the ads I'd seen, E Band had previously opened for big name rock bands, but the members had begun to follow Jesus and were now singing for him an odd assortment of probably 150 to 200 people gathered in that basement. Some looked like they had stepped out of a conservative Baptist or even a Pentecostal church. Others looked like college students. A few might have been professionals, and quite a number seemed like they might have floated in from Haight-Ashbury or might still be trying to find their way home from the Woodstock Festival. It was the atmosphere of warm fellowship, of simple but obvious dedication to Jesus, and of enthusiasm to see others know him that moved me deeply. It spoke to the hunger in me for something more than I had known. Something that had the taste of the Gospels and the book of Acts. In addition, E was excellent. Most of their set that night consisted of rearranged Christmas carols old songs, sung in a new musical way, with a fresh attitude. I'll never forget the end of that concert. A moving rendition of, incredibly enough, Carol of the Bells. Obviously, the power wasn't in the lyrics of that song, nor was it actually in the arrangement. Rather, it was the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon these long-haired freaks as they simply used what they knew to give glory to their Lord and Savior. When the last note of the song ended, Silence reigned. After what seemed like a long time, the bass player reached back and flipped the switch on his amp. The room was so still that even where we were sitting cross-legged on a blanket in the back of the room, I clearly heard the snap of that switch. Then the room exploded in spontaneous praise. Not for the band, but for the Lord Jesus. The music on the recordings and in E's concert. And the experience of God's presence in that basement spoke to the deepest part of my being. A hunger to know the reality of a living and present God more fully began to surface in me. Not too long after this concert, Evangelist Leighton Ford held a crusade in Marion, Indiana. He brought in a musician named John Fisher to work with youth. Fisher had attended Wheaton College and was not from the youth counterculture although he'd obviously had contact with it. There was something new, fresh, even a bit radical about his music, message and music. Fisher communicated a deep z- desire for reality in relationship to God and to all of life. His music fed the growing hunger in me. His lyrics and spoken words challenged status quo Christianity, both in church activity and in personal life. A month or so later, John and Vicky Meadows came out to Marion to visit Patricia and me. Before too long, John and I left the ladies visiting in the living room. We placed the stereo on the floor in the furniture-less spare room where Patricia and I stored unpacked boxes. And we lay down between the speakers. As we listened to the Jesus music records, we started catching up on things. John told me about a Saturday evening Bible study that he had started for the Sunday school class he was leading at the North Columbus Church of Christ in Christian Union. A few Sunday school class members had continued after the first couple of weeks, but the Bible study had taken a turn. John had run into a long-haired fellow named Dick Pope who was wearing a badge that spoke about Jesus. During their conversation, John had sensed that, in spite of the hair and hippie-looking clothes, Dick was genuinely a brother in the Lord, and he had invited him to the Bible study. Dick came and kept on coming, and began to bring some other Jesus freaks with him. John had found these young Christians deeply enthused about Jesus. They also not only read the Bible, they read it hungrily, and simply believed it, and began to practice what they read. John shared how this was stirring up his hunger for God. Then he told me that after several weeks he had heard one of these brothers making strange sounds quietly during a prayer time. At some point John realized the man must have been praying in tongues. In spite of the fact that John had not been raised believing that the modern day expression of tongues was not biblical, he was not willing to write this off. He had seen the fruit of this man's walk in the Lord, and had himself been stirred toward the Lord in his fellowship with these brothers. At this point, I grew cautious and warned John to be careful that he not get caught up in error. I had no interest in speaking in tongues. However, however, over the next few months, I began to hear that several of my fellow students, well known for participating in off-campus parties that included drinking, drug use, and sexual immorality, had surrendered to Jesus. I heard that they had begun to t- attend a nearby Pentecostal church and were speaking in tongues. In addition, several times during this period, Patricia and I went to Anderson, Indiana, to worship with a group of people in the basement of a house. The obvious presence and activity of God among these brothers and sisters made a significant impact on us. Only after several visits did we find out that many of these people also believed in speaking in tongues. I began to read and reread passages that mention tongues in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. I began to wonder about the place of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. In those early months of 1972, I read three books that added to my awakened hunger and thirst for God, for the body of Christ, and for spiritual power. First, at the Leighton Ford Crusade. I bought Ray C. Steadman's book, Body Life, The Church Comes Alive. For the first time, I had found someone who was speaking with insight and wisdom to my desire for the reality of the church as the body of Christ. Here was a pastor and teacher who took seriously what the scripture teaches about relationships in the church and about the working of the Holy Spirit through the church, and he had taken definite steps to make room for the work of the Holy Spirit in his church. Second, somehow I got hold of Chuck Smith's book, The Reproducers, New Life for Thousands. I could not lay down this simple little book, which documented the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing thousands of young people to Jesus through the ministry of what had been a relatively small church in Costa Mesa, California, a church called Calvary Chapel. Who would have guessed that this movement would give birth to hundreds of churches around the world, and that the folk rock music of its young converts would become the standard for large segments of the church over the next couple of decades? I surely didn't, but I did know that I wanted the reality of church life that the book described. Third, I read Hal Lindsey's book, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. To my chagrin now, I must say that this book had some credibility with me only because I had read and believed Lindsay's previous book on biblical prophecy, The Late Great Planet Earth, a view of eschatology that I have come to believe more harmful than helpful. Satan is alive and well on planet earth, however, described a realm of evil spiritual activity of which I knew little or nothing. So ignorant was I of the realm of the occult, of witchcraft, and of the demonic, that only three years or so before that time, I had thought it probable that when the gospels speak of Jesus casting out demons, that it really meant that he was healing mentally ill people. I had begun to be aware by 1972, however, that many from the youth culture who had not turned to Jesus were exploring the occult. That spring, same spring when I was student teaching at Marion High School, one of my students wrote a paper describing her belief in and practice of white witchcraft. Only with some difficulty did I come to the realization that she was serious. Lindsay's book helped me realize the Bible was really true when it spoke of these matters. It was also influential in that I began to be aware that there are realms that I cannot know by means of my mind or my physical senses only. As a student teacher, I taught four classes, three of regular senior English and one of senior honor students. In a way beyond any previous personal experience through my contact with my students, I began to see the lostness and hopelessness of some, and the searching through drugs and intellectual and spiritual ideas of others. I became aware that the church as I had known it was essentially irrelevant and powerless to deal with the problems of that generation. In June of 1972, John Meadows and I joined nearly 100,000 young people who descended on Dallas, Texas for Explo 72. This event, sponsored by Campus Crusade, was set up to train young people in Crusade's method of evangelism. Frankly I didn't get all that much from the training. However at that event I met and worshiped with Christian young people from every conceivable background and form of church. About 80,000 of us met in the Cotton Bowl for the evening celebrations. On Saturday an estimated 160,000. Some estimate 180,000 of us attended an all-day Jesus music festival. During that week in Dallas, a transformation that had begun several years before was accomplished. No longer would I be only Steve Humble, Christian and child of the holiness movement. From that time on, I would primarily be Steve Humble, disciple of Jesus and member of my own generation. I had irrevocably identified with what I saw God doing in my day.